Hello and welcome to another episode of Chemically Speaking, the official podcast of the Royal Australian Chemical Institute. My name is Dr. Matt Griffith, and today we'll be delving into the future of energy generation technologies in Australia. Before we get started, there's a few upcoming RACI events we'd like to draw to your attention. The new membership year is quickly approaching, so don't forget to renew your membership in June. Or better yet, head over to the RACI website, www.raci.org.au, and join up as a new member. We'd love to have you involved in shaping the future of chemistry in this country. You can also take advantage of our Careers Thursday evening events, which run each week throughout 2021 and are free for all members. Check out the upcoming opportunities while you're on the website. And since you're already there, don't forget to stop by the podcast page and drop us some feedback on previous episodes or let us know what you want to hear about in future episodes. Better yet, why not subscribe to the podcast to make sure you catch each and every new episode as they come out. Okay. Now we're all up to date with the RACI, let's delve into today's content. Energy is one of the most critical concepts in all of science. As chemists, we often spend years learning about the intricacies of how energy is stored within bonds in molecules and how chemical reactions release this stored energy, allowing us to use it for other purposes. For over a century, Australian homes and businesses have been generating electricity by releasing the chemical energy stored in coal and gas through our power stations. Our nation has done exceedingly well from this industry, with coal exports accounting for one quarter of Australia's resource income over the past decade. However, Australia's energy system is currently undergoing its biggest changes since electricity first became widely available all those years ago. This is because Australians are changing how we use energy and are starting to embrace new technologies such as solar, wind power and battery storage. But discussing energy generation, and in particular what Australia's future technology mix might look like, is often a very polarising debate, but it's one that we simply must have. Affordability and reliability are critical for any future energy generation technology, but equally important are environmental and sustainability considerations, which have come to the forefront in recent years. In 2020, renewable energy was responsible for almost 28% of Australia's total electricity generation, the first time that more than a quarter of the country's energy has come from renewable sources. In fact, the largest power plant in the country right now is the solar cells that are spread across 29% of Australian homes. Transitioning the energy generation system in this country to deal with an increasing share of renewables and different ways of operating is challenging, but it also presents many opportunities to help businesses manage their energy costs as well as capture new sources of growth. And as we're about to find out, Australia's chemists are finding themselves in hot demand in our efforts to develop the future of energy generation in Australia. Our first guest today is Professor Anita Ho-Bailey, who is the John Hook Chair of Nanoscience at the University of Sydney. Completing her engineering and PhD degrees at the University of New South Wales, Anita then went on to work for a number of companies in the photovoltaics industry before pursuing a career in academia. Over the past two decades, she has developed a keen interest in engineering materials and devices at the nanoscale for integrating solar cells onto all kinds of surfaces to generate clean energy. You might already be familiar with Anita, 
as she frequently appears in the media for her work building integrated photovoltaics research and for her achievements in setting solar cell energy efficiency world records in various categories, placing her research at the forefront of international efforts in solar energy generation. Anita, it's a real pleasure to have you with us today on Chemically Speaking. Thanks for having me, Matt. You were trained in one of the most famous solar energy research labs in the world at UNSW. Were you always attracted to this area or did your experience in this group inspire you to pursue a career in solar energy technology? Well, actually, I was inspired when I was in year two uh, in my undergraduate research degree. So I was in this uh, microelectronics course and it was taught by the late Stuart Wenham. So uh, he's managed to impart his passion for solar cells. So what he did was in the electronics course, he sneaked in two lectures on solar cells and he did a demonstration of the solar panel. So he took us all up to, to the rooftop and he connected the solar panel to a water pump. So as soon as he removed the cardboard cover, the water pump starts to pump water. And I was really fascinated by that. I was just amazed how you can't stop the energy unless you cover the solar panel and there was no PowerPoint. So it was sourcing energy from the sun for free. Excellent. Um, very good to hear about Stuart and his memory may live on for many years yet. So solar cells are probably the most recognizable of all the emerging generation technologies for renewable energy, with a lot of Australians installing them on their rooftops. From a very basic starting point, what types of materials do we need to make a solar cell and how do they work? Basically, solar cells are made of semiconductors. So in a nutshell, a semiconductor is an insulator if there's no energy input into the system. But when we give it energy, for example, if we shine light onto a semiconductor and if it's reasonably photoreceptive, then there will be enough energy to excite the electrons from its valence band, which is a dormant state, to a conduction band where the electrons are free to move. So when you have the movement of electrons, you will get electric current and therefore the semiconductor becomes a conductor and generates electricity. Fantastic. What a wonderful system. Now, we famously receive a lot of solar irradiation in Australia. Roughly how much energy do we use in Australia each year and how long would it take the sun to provide us with this same amount of energy? Well, Australia's energy consumption is about 190 terawatt hours. And that's equivalent to running 11 billion two kilowatt fan heaters you may have in your living room continuously. So to answer your question about how much sun's energy we get, well, we get around 1,800 kilowatt hour per square meter per year. So if you times it by the area of Australia, which is really big, this will give you 14 exawatt per hour. <laughs> so you can see we're running out of words for the international system of units. Basically, it's a number 14 with 18 zeros behind. It means that the sun energy uh, that is shown on Australia in a year is 74,000 times more than what we consume in a year. Wow. Okay. So we have plenty of solar energy available. So roughly how much does it cost to make a solar panel to capture this energy using the current market technology? And how does this cost compare to our current electricity prices? Well, it doesn't cost a lot to make a solar panel. 
it costs around 40 US cents per watt. Of course, the solar system doesn't just have the solar panels. It's got the inverters, mounting, wiring, and all that. But uh, to put it into perspective, I think a 10-kilowatt system now costs around $10,000. And I've even heard 6-kilowatt system costs around $3,000. So a 10-kilowatt system puts around 30 to 40 kilowatt hour a day. And we're paying 20 to 30 cents per kilowatt hour. So what it means is if you use all of the energy put out by your 10 kilowatt system on the roof, you save around 3500 a year on electricity cost or $2,000 a year for your 6 kilowatt system. So what it means is it takes you less than three years to recoup the cost of the 10 kilowatt system or one and a half years for your 6 kilowatt system. So they basically pay for themselves. Excellent. What, what a wonderful system. And I imagine there's also a lot of installation costs and things that are somewhat beyond the control of the scientists who are developing the technology itself. So purely from the solar cell technology perspective, what is the main driver of this cost? Right. So for your rooftop systems, they consist of silicon cells, which is sort of the incumbent technology. And the cost driver for silicon cells is actually the silicon itself. Right. Very interesting. And so the outlook seems very promising for current rooftop silicon solar cells in a country like Australia, where, as you've just outlined, we have lots of strong solar exposure. But for other countries with lower solar exposure or perhaps for other applications outside rooftop solar, we might want to look into developing other solar technologies with different properties. So what are some of the other technologies that are currently under development in the area of solar energy technology? Hmm. So I think even for Australia or places with a lot of sun, there's still quite a lot of room for technological advances beyond silicon. So the practical efficiency limit for silicon is 29% and it is now at 27%. So there isn't a lot of room to move for silicon. Also, it's a rigid material. So there are alternatives out there uh, that can be made much thinner and therefore can be flexible, unlike silicon. So for example, there's this material called the metal halide perovskites. So this metal halide perovskite's got a similar structure as the calcium titanium oxide and its chemical formula is ABX3. The A could be like methylmonium or formamidinium or cesium. And the B site is where the metal is. So the metal is typically lead or tin or germanium. And the X site is the anion. So in this case, it will be the halide, aldehyde or bromide. This material has got very high absorption coefficients. And therefore, they can be made much thinner than silicon. It's actually 200 times thinner. So yeah, this is a very promising technology at the moment. And there's more. It's like in the ad, right? (laughs) (laughs) There's more. It responds to diffuse light and low-intensity light much better than silicon, and uh, it takes a lot less energy to make. Wow, I see. And so even though solar cells are quite efficient already for one particular purpose, there's still huge efforts to improve the efficiency and the cost and power-to-weight ratio of solar cells using modern innovation. Yeah, so the word power to weight ratio, the concept is important for more niche 
applications. For example, we can now have, apart from building integrated photovoltaics, we can have vehicle integrated photovoltaics or space solar cells where the uh, power to weight ratio is very important. So for perovskites, even for a pretty low efficient cell, the power to weight ratio is around 20 to 30 watts per gram. And that's 10 times higher than the solar cell technology used for space, which got a power to weight ratio of around 3 watts per gram. And literally the sky's the limit. For perovskite, you can even stack it onto the existing cell technology. So stack them together and the efficiency limit jumps from 33% to 44%. So yeah, I can go on and on. (laughs) (laughs) It's very fascinating and what an awesome vision of the future this perovskite provides. So what is the role that Australia's chemists have to play in developing these emerging solar energy technologies? Well, we need synthetic chemists. We need them to synthesize new materials and materials for the photo-absorbing part, but also materials that will efficiently transport the electrons and holes out of the solar cell into electric load. We need spectroscopists who can probe the behavior of the electrons within the semiconductor and within the solar cells. We also need organic chemists. They may want to look at how we can recycle perovskite cell panels because they're organic parts in it, so it can make the recycling part challenging. So, yes, the chemists are going to change the world. That's what we like to hear. Now, I guess if we can zoom out and go back to a a macro scale of all of these different solar energy technologies, one of the classic concerns that often pops up when discussing large-scale energy generation with solar technology is this challenge of providing baseload power. That is an uninterrupted on-demand supply for large amounts of people using a technology which in this case is only switched on when, of course, the sun is out. So do you think it will become possible that solar energy can ever provide a significant portion of baseload power for Australia? Yes, I do. And, you know, the word baseload power is interesting, right? So it was used in the old days as this rigid static supply of energy. But since when our energy consumption is ever static? So I remember one good example a few years back is the energy consumption on a grand final night. So when the ads are on, people all go on and turn the kettle on, make a cup of tea, and you see this big spike <laughs> in energy consumption, right? <laughs> so I guess it's very similar during the day. You know, you switch on your uh, air conditioning when it's a very hot day. So I think there is a lot of evidence out there that solar is very effective in shaving off the peak power demand during the day. And by having batteries, we're just going to be able to smooth out the intermittence further. Excellent. That's fantastic to hear. So it sounds very promising for a bright future in Australia. Uh, So Anita, thank you once again for spending time with us today on Chemically Speaking. Thank you, Matt. Welcome back to Chemically Speaking. I'm Dr. Matt Griffith, and today we're discussing the future of energy generation in Australia. Our second guest is Professor Bernadette McCabe, 
who is a principal scientist at the University of Southern Queensland's Centre for Agricultural Engineering. Bernadette has a background in agricultural biotechnology and has over 20 years of experience as an academic and researcher. Her research investigates technologies to enable intensive Australian farming and food processing industries to turn their commercial waste into a valuable energy-producing commodity. She is a regular contributor to media outlets to boost public awareness of bioenergy and bioresource recycling and is currently Australia's national team leader for the International Energy Agency's Bioenergy Program Task 37, which is energy from biogas. Bernadette, it's a pleasure to have you with us today on Chemically Speaking. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you, Matt. Now, you worked with your dad as a racehorse strapper as a kid and knew from a young age that you wanted to be either a vet or a scientist, turning towards science due to some great high school teachers. You gravitated towards chemistry and microbiology during some work placements with the CSIRO. What was it that attracted you towards this particular area of science? It was really the applied nature of the two areas that drew me to learning more and understanding, particularly their potential for improving both the environment and also agricultural production. And there were a couple of key sort of highlights that really sparked my interest in learning more. And one of them was in my second year of as an undergraduate when I was doing microbiology. And it was a year that we had the Exxon Valdez oil spill during in 1989. And I remember my, my lecturer at the time at Sydney Uni was, was a passionate microbiology ecologist and spoke of all these wondrous things that microorganisms can do in terms of actually cleaning up oil spills. And I just thought that was a fabulous area to, to look at. And then from there, I had a workplace placement with CSIRO, a student, over the summer. And so each time I was drawn to this, the ability for, for these areas to actually solve a problem with industry. And, and it's carried on through my research life and working with industry. Excellent. And so you've moved on from these early experiences to complete a PhD in microbiology, developing a passion for the emerging field of bioenergy. Now, many people are likely unfamiliar with this concept. So... What is bioenergy? So bioenergy is essentially energy generated from the conversion of a number of feedstocks and whether they are in the form of solids or liquids and even gaseous products, well, that's the end products. But the one common feedstock is that they're derived from biomass. And when we talk about biomass, it's about any organic matter that's available on a renewable basis, such as from waste. And so that's where we can truly say that bioenergy is renewable because of the feedstock. But it can also include combustible components of municipal solid waste as well. It sounds like quite a versatile technology and you've mentioned heat there. So what are some of the different forms of bioenergy that can be produced? It can be able to produce renewable electricity, heat, which I mentioned previously, and also gas for various scales as well. So it can be residential use, commercial, and also industrial applications, and also clean transport fuel. But one of the more probably undervalued products from a bioenergy pathway is also some of the co-products that it can produce. And so an example would be, say, if you're um, gasifying a biomass, for example, through you know, thermal technologies, you can produce a biochar and biochar has been seen as an important 
soil amendment and so it has actual potential use for increasing carbon into the soil that's really important in terms of the Australian agricultural perspective given how really poor soils that we have with low carbon content. Fantastic so not just energy but some other side benefits which leads us to the next question in that there are a few different emerging renewable energy technologies that can be used to produce energy So what are the features of bioenergy production that provide some unique advantages? I think um, the bioenergy pathways that I mentioned before do actually have certain technological benefits over alternative energy sources across all of the end uses. And these are mainly due to bioenergy end products, usually having similar characteristics to conventional fossil fuels. So I'll present a couple of examples here. So One of them is in the form where bioenergy can address most industrial heat requirements. So while other low emissions alternatives such as solar thermal and geothermal can be used for industrial heat applications below 400 degrees Celsius, bioenergy can be used for a lot higher temperatures, a high demand of say up to 1200 degrees. So there's that. Another example is that electricity generation from bioenergy is dispatchable. So what we mean there, it can be used to complement other sources of renewable energy, such as intermittent solar, PV and wind, and reduce emissions in existing dispatchable generation as well. And the last one, which is in its early phases of being explored in Australia, is that biomethane, which is an upgraded form of biogas. So biomethane is basically the same as natural gas. It's it's 99% methane. It can help mitigate um, stranded asset risk of existing infrastructure. So by this we mean that given biomethane's chemical composition is very close to natural gas, it's suitable renewable substitute for natural gas. Mm. Wow, what an exciting prospect for the future this becomes. So would it be possible to generate baseload power for large populations or is bioenergy more suited to smaller on-demand power generation? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question um, because if we look at the the landscape for which bioenergy is currently implemented, it is tends to be on a more small to medium scale. And if I can point to some examples where bioenergy is already being implemented, we can turn to, say, the pork sector where they generate biogas from the treatment of their wastewater. And there is a number of examples that exist in the country. So in Australia, there's about 20 systems where piggeries utilise what we call covered anaerobic ponds, where they're capturing methane to then either put into generators to produce electricity to be then used on site. So that's where we call these term behind the meter savings. But also if you're going through combined heat and power, the heat generated from the production of the power is also utilised in sheds so that they're um, you know, using them for rearing their piglets. So that's small scale. And it tends to be that bioenergy currently is being used in that way. Like same with the wastewater treatment plants, they're using similar process for wastewater treatment plants and using those savings to basically be energy or cost neutral for some of those wastewater treatment plants. Excellent. And so on the topic of costs, and perhaps this with so many different technologies making up this bioenergy portfolio, it might be a difficult question to answer, but do you have a feeling for how cost competitive bioenergy generation currently would be in comparison to today's commercial energy? 
Yeah, that is a little bit difficult to answer. But look, I think if we can actually drill down to some of the competitive advantages for which the different bioenergy pathways provide, let's have a look at, for example, heat. It has been shown through some you know, modelling that bioenergy is actually cost competitive with other options for renewable industrial heat. Also, in terms of the other pathway or the other end use, it's also cost competitive with dispatchable renewable electricity generation, especially in those niche applications. For example, I mentioned about piggeries, you know, that's actually in effect a, a cost cutting exercise and it's actually more profitable for those farmers to treat their waste that way. And the other one I pointed to, which is emerging, is around biomethane and how biomethane from, say, landfill gas offers an early cost-competitive opportunity to reduce emissions in Australia's gas networks, even in the short term. Wow. Sounds like it's already cost-competitive in certain innovative niches, and then we build the industry from there. On that point, you've mentioned the, the piggeries in Australia. Are there any other bioenergy plants that are currently in operation in Australia? Yeah. So if we have a look at where the majority of our bioenergy projects lie, it's been traditionally just combusting the gas to produce electricity for the sugar mills. And it has done for over a century now. And in fact, bioelectricity counts for 1.4% of Australia's electricity generation. So that's where the majority of where we say what bioenergy projects are. Then if we look at the other product in bioheat, it accounts for about 15% of Australia's heat generation. And then if we look at the biogas plants, that's my favourite because obviously that's where my um, interest is. Currently, we've got about 240-odd biogas plants, the majority of which are uh, landfill gas operations, which I mentioned before, but there are also about 50 wastewater treatment plants that are capturing biogas. And the total amount of biogas in Australia would be probably equating to about 23 petajoules. So that's where we're currently at in terms of projects across Australia. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a surprisingly large number in that about one in every 70 kilowatt hours that we use is actually currently already produced by bioenergy. And so... On the theme of expanding bioenergy, you've been the board director of Bioenergy Australia and you're now the national program leader for the International Energy Agency's biogas theme. So with this experience, where do you think Australia is currently positioned in terms of larger scale technology rollouts to produce energy from biomass sources? There are a couple of key areas where I think is, is important to highlight and one is bioenergy is not just different. It's not just a different low emissions source. It also produces solutions for what we call those hard to abate sectors. For example, Australia's road transport in the short term, especially for heavy duty vehicles, right? So there's been some talk around, you know, EVs and even electricity for trucks, but you've got to look at that in terms of how practical that is for a nation which has huge distances. And how, you know, internationally that's been shown where renewable natural gas even can be seen as a replacement for diesel in heavy vehicles. Um, another advantage is that biojet fuels are the only practical option to reduce emissions in air travel in the short to medium term. So it's all these things around like blue emissions. But there are a couple of other advantages or benefits that bioenergy has which sometimes are really hard to quantify, but I think it's, it's really important in order for it to get its importance out there. 
So, for instance, bioenergy creates economic development opportunities in regional areas. As we said, well, that's where most of the feedstocks are. You know, the bioenergy resources are often located in regional areas and they can support local economies by creating new income streams and skilled jobs in those areas. Wow. So, Bernadette, it's been fascinating taking this journey through the bioenergy field with you today. And I imagine none of our listeners will ever look at organic waste the same way again. So on behalf of Chemically Speaking, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much, Matt, for the opportunity to chat with you. Welcome back to Chemically Speaking. I'm Dr. Matt Griffith, and today we're discussing the future of energy generation in Australia. Our final guest today is Dr. Terry Humphreys, who is a research fellow at Curtin University. Terry has worked in research roles throughout the world, devoting his career to developing the next generation of hydrogen-based energy technologies. With materials development at the forefront of the hydrogen economy, Terry's training as an inorganic chemist has allowed him to synthesize and characterize exciting new materials to kickstart Australia's hydrogen economy efforts. Terry, thank you for joining us today on Chemically Speaking. Hi, Matthew. You developed a passion for science early in life, driving past the Pfizer factory in the UK each day with your mum. What attracted you to this emerging field of hydrogen energy research? Well, Matthew, I've always had a keen interest in science and especially chemistry since I'm a young age. So I originally completed my degree in chemistry and then went on to be an analytical chemist um, at Pfizer. It wasn't until 2006 um, that I was actually given the opportunity to study for my PhD in Canada at the University of New Brunswick under the tuition of um, the late Professor Sean McGrady. And when he called me and mentioned that I could work on hydrogen storage and hydrogen generation, I thought that'd be fantastic as it could possibly revolutionize the world. So I obviously jumped at the chance. Fantastic. What a story. So the Australian government has recently produced a strategic roadmap outlining a pathway to a hydrogen economy, which has kickstarted serious industry interest in this area. Could you outline for us how we could produce energy from hydrogen? So there are two main methods of producing energy from hydrogen. The most efficient and sustainable method is to use hydrogen in a fuel cell to produce electricity. Here, hydrogen reacts with oxygen across a proton exchange membrane, or PEM cell. And water is the only byproduct, so there's no emissions of um, global carbon dioxide emissions or anything like that. So this electrochemical method of producing electricity can actually be implemented into many technologies, including fuel cell cars, domestic energy systems, and also for remote power generation, such as in rural Australia. Secondly, we can simply burn the hydrogen in a thermochemical reaction. This can be achieved by using pure hydrogen or even a blend of hydrogen with natural gas. ATCO are currently exploring the injection of hydrogen gas into natural gas and have found that at least 10% can be added without changing any part of the burners in the house. Okay, wow. So it's quite a versatile material that can produce energy in a few different manners. So what is it about hydrogen that makes it such an attractive material for energy generation? That's true. Hydrogen is very versatile, and that is its main attraction. Firstly, when it's used to produce energy, it's clean and doesn't produce any greenhouse gases, as water is the only product. Also, it is very easy to produce using renewable energy sources, 
and could be stored for a long time, reducing the need for expensive lithium-ion battery installations. It is also easy to store and transport. This could be done by either compressing the gas into cylinders, as we see just in normal chemistry labs, or it could be liquefied or also stored in another chemical, such as a metal hydride. This is, for example, is um, magnesium hydride for this. There are also many companies um, discussing converting hydrogen into ammonia, as this can be easily transported, and there are millions of tons of ammonia produced around the world globally. But overall, for any energy source to become viable, convenience of producing this material will prosper. So how do we make the hydrogen that could be used to power this hydrogen economy? Currently, much of today's hydrogen is produced from fossil fuels, and this is done via steam reformation. But luckily, this landscape is changing rapidly. Green hydrogen can be easily produced via electrolysis of water to form hydrogen and oxygen. This electricity can originally be produced directly using, say, solar power or other renewables such as wind or tidal. There are currently a number of hydrogen projects in development in Australia and around the world to increase hydrogen production, especially green hydrogen. The government has recently invested into these projects at Co Clean Energy Innovation Hub. They've promised $275 million to accelerate the development of clean hydrogen hubs in regional Australia. Okay, so we have this cheap and abundant material that can be used to make clean energy. Seems like a fantastic idea. So could you tell us if hydrogen is already being used anywhere in the world to generate energy? And if so, roughly what fraction of the energy generation mix does hydrogen currently make up? Hydrogen is um, actually being used globally to store and to generate electricity. I actually saw my first hydrogen fuel station in 2009 on a visit to Iceland, and now there are many fuel stations around Europe, USA, and Asia. And this helps to fuel the next generation of fuel cell cars, such as the Toyota Mirai, um, that run purely on hydrogen. And there are also many heavy haulage trucks in development as well. And at the moment, there's a growing campaign to actually build a hydrogen highway network in WA, so that'd be fantastic. Japan have been lobbying for hydrogen to be their fuel of the future for quite a few years now. They have 135 refueling stations and more than 150,000 homes running on hydrogen around the country. So that means hydrogen export to countries like Japan and Korea is actually going to be a key market in the future, especially for Australia. But currently, hydrogen still only makes up a small fraction of the generation mix for energy. But this is rapidly increasing as demand and supply increases and also public perception. Yes, and I suppose one of the other reasons for the lack of penetration at the moment is commercial market costs. So how does the cost of hydrogen generation and storage compare to the cost of current energy generation technologies? Yeah, there's no doubt that currently hydrogen is more expensive to produce than oil, gas and other fossil fuels. But this cost will be reduced as the hydrogen economy becomes more widespread. In the past, the hydrogen economy was hindered due to legislature and also the scale, availability and the price of electrolyzers and the fuel cells. But more and more companies are starting to produce these. There are more being commercially available. And so the cost will be decreased dramatically. So conventional hydrogen could cost as low as $2 per kilo. But that's using fossil fuels to produce the hydrogen. But unfortunately, green hydrogen still costs about $4 per kilo. The goal is actually for green hydrogen to cost $2 per kilogram. That way, it will be competitive against fossil fuels. Yeah, so it sounds from what we've chatted about today that 
some of the most cutting-edge hydrogen economy things are happening overseas in Europe and, and as you've outlined in Japan. So do you think we have the right infrastructure and government policies in place in Australia at the moment to enable a hydrogen economy? And if not, what would we need to do to create one in the future? As time goes by, infrastructure and government policies are improving. And we've seen this very recently, especially as you're seeing many of the larger mining companies coming on board as well. There's a lot of interest and we need to be able to push this forward. So hydrogen is actually gaining interest for the right reasons. We need to store the energy produced by renewable energies on a large scale. And the government is also aware of this as well. The government is budgeting for many hydrogen products to promote this economy. And much funding is available for research, commercialization, and also for expanding the industry. For instance, the government has recently funded the Future Energy Export CRC, which many larger companies have got involved with aiding research to be conducted at universities and then commercialized. Excellent. So it sounds exceptionally promising, but also like there may be a few pieces of the puzzle that still need to fall into place to enable this exciting vision. So what are the challenges that Australia's next generation of chemists will need to overcome to help make this hydrogen-based energy a reality? So yeah, there's plenty of opportunity for Australia's chemists to um, get involved with this hydrogen economy, as there are many aspects that still need to be optimised. The basic infrastructure is there, and there is a government roadmap that has been developed to aid us in this course. There aren't many aspects that have actually been completely solved, as methods of development, storage, all need to be optimised. And of course, efficiencies can also be improved. Hydrogen storage is also um, another key aspect that we need to uh, finalise as well. Compression is obviously the easy option. But we also need to improve the energy density of our storage as well, especially if we're going to use hydrogen for our cars and also for global hydrogen export. Excellent. Sounds like there's very exciting times ahead for Australia and this hydrogen economy. So on behalf of us here at Chemically Speaking, thank you very much for speaking with us today, Terry. Thank you very much. Australia's energy generation and our economy are directly linked together. Historically, low power and gas prices have been the engine room for our nation's growth. However, the way that Australians produce and consume energy is clearly starting to change. In most parts of the world, the drive towards renewable and sustainable energy is well underway, and there's no doubt Australia is heading down the same transformative pathway. So the big questions to answer in the next decade will include which energy generation technologies suit our nation the best? Are these new energy generation technologies ready for their new roles? And can these technologies deliver energy at the same low prices we've come to rely upon? As we've heard today, the answer is an overwhelming yes. Blessed with a huge amount of natural sun exposure and exceptionally low production cost, solar energy is poised to increase its already significant role within our energy mixture. We could also use solar energy to split water apart, creating a clean green gas in hydrogen that has several advantages for energy generation. To help the transition, we could also start to invest in bioenergy, a really versatile area which generates products for heat, electricity, and transportable fuels 
and could be swapped directly into existing gas pipelines tomorrow without any issues. Perhaps the main takeaway from today's episode is that the future will probably involve all of these technologies and more. As we find the right mix, it's a perfect time for our nation's chemists to get involved in developing new energy generation research and products to turn Australia into a 21st century energy superpower. And that's all we have for you on today's episode of Chemically Speaking. Don't forget to subscribe to listen to us on your favorite podcast platform, or better yet, write us a review or jump on the website and get in touch. We really do love hearing back from you here on this podcast. I'm Dr. Matt Griffith, and I'll be back in June with a new episode exploring the innovative energy storage technologies that will allow us to move towards this sustainable energy future. Until then, I hope your days are brightened by a little tweak of chemistry.